This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Scott. Hi, I'm Paul. And we're going to talk about The Broken Sword, a 1954 fantasy novel by Poole Anderson. It's classified as a fantasy novel. Um, I guess it is a fantasy novel. (laughs) Um, It feels more like um, a reconstruction of a Norse saga of some kind with uh, more Dungeons & Dragons elements. Um, But I think it's because Dungeons & Dragons is inspired largely by uh, many sort of things going on in this book. Um, Felt very D&D to me. Hmm. Uh, First time I've read it, Paul. Have you you read this before? Uh, this is the third time I've consumed it. <laughs> and Scott, this is your first time. This is right? my first, but I loved it. Well, so it's definitely um, going to be read again. Hmm. Yeah, I thought it was terrific. I thought it was terrible. Did you really? <laughs> ah! Did you I really? Did. Let, I did. Just, I was very surprised that I found it terrible. Huh? What did Why you say, did Paul? You fu- why did you find it terrible, Jesse? I was wondering why I was finding it so terrible. And I, I was thinking about it and trying to figure out why exactly. Because it's a famous book. I like Paul Anderson normally. Notice that I use the word like. I don't love Paul Anderson at all. Um, and I, I was thinking, here's kind of what would have, would, have, would have happened had I not been indoctrinated into uh, uh, liking fantasy by reading Lord of the Rings. If, if there had been an, another book on the bookshelf and I picked that up instead and it was called The Broken Sword I don't know if I would have been interested in fantasy at all I was trying to figure out why and I'm not 100% sure but I think I've got some sort of ideas and I've read a lot of stuff that's very similar to this like Eric Bright Eyes which is uh, by uh, H. Ryder Haggard which is like late 1897 or something like that and I've read other Paul Anderson including some of his fantasy stuff uh-huh. But I think it comes down to um, I don't like idiots. <laughs> I don't like assholes. There's a lot of idiocy and a lot of assholes in this. And there's a lot of magic, which also I don't like. I noticed like when I played Dungeons and Dragons, I hated magic. All the stuff related to magic. And I and I know there's that stuff is in the Lord of the Rings, but it's it's low magic. And we don't see it from that perspective very much. And we're always striving towards wisdom there, if not actually having it. We're, they're trying to sort of get rid of the nuclear weapons of magic in that book. Whereas here, the nuclear weapons of magic is dug out of the you know the wall and reforged, even though we all know it's a bad idea and we all know Odin's you know going to do all the stuff. And, I, and I, it's not that I... I hated every page of it. It was more like, I'm not interested in this. It seems kind of like, I don't know. It didn't do it for me. Hmm. So I, I don't. I hate to ruin the show for you guys, but uh, <laughs> well, obviously you have differing opinions and differing. Well, uh, the, the, the show was the show is my fault because I suggested this book. I suggested the author Dr. and Crystal this Paul. and I'm this book. A check mark on my uh, so. So I basically wasted eight hours of your life, Jesse, and I apologize. <laughs> well, it's not a complete waste. We're going to have a conversation. But 
No, so my, my opinion is um, that this is a uh, a novel that doesn't really follow those rules that you're talking about. I mean, to me, it's in the realm of mythology. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those rules that you're talking about kind of don't apply, you know. So like when we read Beowulf, right? Um, that's the territory that this book is in for me. It's not in Lord of the Rings territory in my my head anyway. Yeah. So when I, I, I when I read I it, what to... what it immediately reminded me of is um, Elric. Remember Michael yes. Moorcock wrote Elric, mm-hmm. and it kind of felt the same way to me. And I think Elric. Well, I know Elric came after. But mm-hmm. when I first heard, I remember Audio Realms did an incredible audio version of Elric of Mel- Melnibony, I think you say. Um, mm. It was a terrific audio version, and I really remember listening to that. But it felt the same as this, in, in that um, you're dealing with like archetypes and uh, gods and, and things like that. It doesn't follow the normal narrative thing. It's like much greater and deeper than that it's um it's like uh i don't know it's mythic mythic is the only word that i have just to say it's it's dealing with things that um even like lord of the rings wasn't dealing with lord of the rings was was much different i guess i'm just trying to say yeah totally different yeah it's not not the same it's like they're both called fantasy right but one of them is like a myth and one of them is inspired by myth i guess you know yeah it's like yeah, no, th- th- this I, book I, the I, way i mean the way it was written and everything i mean it reminded me so much of things like beowulf and i thought the language was amazing um mm. throughout there there were I, I highlighted so many things in this book that i thought were just oh man that was great yeah i i could see that on your tweets during the week i was pretty quiet mm-hmm. uh well, because I was which like, got, got, yeah, which got me, got me worried. I even said to yeah. Scott, I hope Jesse likes it because he's not saying much. <laughs> yeah, he's not saying much. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe he was busy, you know. Um, I, I think you're exactly right to point it and put it in the same direction as as uh, Beowulf. I, I would say it is, it's directly inspired by Beowulf um, and exactly such tales as that. The, uh, we did a show on the. Uh, saga of the Volsungs, mm-hmm. the Volsunga saga, right? Which is full of this exact stuff. It's got werewolves and yeah, dragons. So what, why do you like that stuff and not this stuff? I guess the, because probably because it's like from a thousand years ago and that is an insight into uh, their society. Mm. It's in the same way that the Odyssey is from, you know, 2,500 years ago and it's an insight into that society. Um, uh, one of one of the complaints I didn't have a lot of complaints about uh, Bosunga Saga or or uh, Beowulf, uh, obviously, um, is was that yeah the the characters tended to not be very wise. They kind of like made mistakes, but uh, in, when it's a mythic story like that, uh, you know, with semi historical characters, I, at the beginning of this one we get a reference to. Uh, Ragnar, hairy, hairy legs, right? The hairy breeches. Lodbrok, Ragnar Lodbrok is one of this guy's ancestors or something. And um, I'm cool with that, but the problem is uh, Paul Anderson's from, you know, the 20th century. And he does a lot of the recreation of the language, right? It's very simile, nice. It's, it's not as deeply um, full of that, and he calls that out in the opening. He sort of toned down the uh, 
massive metaphors all the time. But uh, yeah, I just did. It was. It felt like a novel to me, despite all that. And I, it's not that I hated it at all, really. It's just that I, I never liked Michael Moorcock's stuff either. But I didn't read all the way through it. I would like, yeah, this does, isn't doing it for me. I'll, I'll do something else, right? Whereas with this one, I'm like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see why this is such a famous book. And I've, I got through, it and I still don't know. <laughs> Why people love it so much, but I think it's the same reason people love a lot of fantasy novels that I have no interest in. Um, there's something uh, I was thinking it might be about power. This is more about power than it is about ideas. Um, people wanting stuff and like the the whole magic sword thing never did it for me in real life. Um, but it, it's a it's a big deal, right? People really care about magic stuff, magic items in fiction and in life, maybe. I'm not sure. Sure. I mean, well, there's this, the, you know, it's not unlike, you know, H.P. Lovecraft and things where you're talking about um, there are things out there that um, are huge and menacing and powerful, and we don't quite understand them. It, they're like on the edge of our um ability to perceive mm -hmm. um that's the kind of universe this is in it's the same type of thing that lovecraft played with well uh, but that's where that's though. what magic is too you know the so the main character in this well scott scufflock he mm -hmm. um scufflock. yeah he, Great name. he was uh you know he had to learn all the magic and things and and, and and it wasn't dwelt upon, um, it, but it would be like in the middle of a battle, and he was he was hurt or something. He'd have to stop, and he'd be drawing runes, trying to heal himself and other people. Um, but that was that was learned, right? Um, well, I, we we knew everything about all the trolls and the elves. You know, like everyone knew about this in the story, right? Yeah, yeah. Lovecraft is kind of the opposite. Those things exist. But they're not known, and the narrator well, is no, telling well, you. Well, I, I agree with that, but there, there's also a, much a greater stuff hinted them. at here. I mean, it's like, where does this magic come from, right? You're disturbing uh, things you don't want to disturb when you like this, uh, the the broken sword itself. Um, was there a complete understanding? You know, they're, they're talking about there's a demon in here and and mm. all this, but it, it wasn't like they completely understood the demon all they knew is that they were going to wake something up and it was going to be uh negative yeah right? but they you know just like in lovecraft <laughs> yeah <laughs> right uh, you know i think i think you know the, the i i don't play the love i've never played the rpg version of lovecraft but i i get the sense that there is sort of that right that people walk around with staves that have been cursed or something like that, and uh, but in, in any particular Lovecraftian story, uh, I mean, there's a couple I don't like. I, um, I'm not a big fan of uh, uh, what's the um, Dreams in the Witch House, for example, uh, which has a lot more magic in it. I was just thinking, like, why why do I care about this guy Scafflock and his his his, uh, I want to say twin, but that's not what he is. He was a changeling. He's his, his counterpart. Yeah, his counterpart. And I was like, this guy sort of got screwed at birth, right? And well, they both did. 
yeah, they, 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 these guys got screwed at birth. Um, they're, you know, cursed in a way that's, you know, very Greek. Obviously, it's also Norse in a certain sense. Um, but when the action flows, and there's a lot of action, I don't find myself thinking about anything in particular other than, oh, there's more action there. And I, uh, like that... I don't know why it, it it bothers me so much, but I think it has to do with it, it's about power and not about ideas. So I didn't find myself thinking about any of the this, ideas in it. This is this is not so much an idea book. I will I will agree with you, and maybe pursuant to our discussion we had on a previous podcast, I know you are all about the ideas, and that was the Forever War podcast, and right. you like. You like science fiction and fantasy that explores ideas, and this this doesn't have the ideas front and center. I mean, there are plenty of ideas in this book, but they're not they're but not they're anywhere. Just rules. They seem like very Dungeons and Dragonsy rules. Like like I liked all the stuff. Okay, there's these rules that the certain creatures can't touch iron, right? So you're gonna have to change out of your werewolf form in order to touch this sword. I'm like, okay, why? And the answer is just that's the rule, right? Okay, that's... like uh, one one magic magic heavy story I really or series I liked was uh, by Larry Niven, you know, called the um, what's it called? The series the magic the magic goes away magic goes away series, right? So uh, the whole point of that is let's treat sci- uh, this magic stuff as a science and figure out what would happen if, right? So. Uh, I am more interested in werewolves as an idea as to what it means. Um, it means kind of you, you become an outlaw. It means you become savage, right? But here it's more about, you know, there's a bunch of rules. If you're going to be werewolfing, you're going to have to do this, this, and this. And it's, But it's not about the why is he a werewolf as much as he's a werewolf now. Okay. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm bringing it all down. I'm sorry about that. Why don't <laughs> no, we get some quotes? I mean, from- no, you're not saying anything that's um, not true at all. But I don't know. I didn't feel. I, I I really liked it. You know, to me, it was there's echoes of all kinds of myth in here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk about uh, the counterpart. You know, you can think about Gilgamesh and Enkidu. You know, from long ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, all kinds of mythology um, plays into this, and then. Um, and that's not unlike the way the world was viewed, you know, people didn't understand how everything worked and we still don't Mm -hmm. in our world today. Right. We just know that some things are, and there's some things that we don't understand. There was a uh, quote in that opening. Uh, I guess this is the revised edition where we listened to, or at least I listened to Bronson. Pinch version. Yeah. Uh, was there another audio? No, no, no. Version? So there, um, you're saying oh, revised you edition. Heard? I have a. I don't know why this happened, but it was published in 1954. Mm-hmm. Then Paul Anderson revised it in 1971 mm-hmm. and yep. made it worse. And and I know this from oh. for sure because I had a paperback that I was I started to follow along with uh, the audio, and the paperback mm-hmm. was different and the language oh, was oh, not man. as good. Yeah. And then in yeah. 2002, Galantz published the science or the fantasy masterwork, and they mm-hmm. reverted back to the 1954, which was the right choice. Yes. So Pinchos I, was I, the 1954 edition. 
I, I had the first time I read this, I had read the revised edition and I liked it pretty fine. But when I came across the original edition, I found it was much more raw and p- powerful and I liked it better. And, and I didn't listen to the Bronson Pichot version. I listened to some other, um, some other version. Uh, uh, oh, that's, uh, I, I didn't the, know there was another version. <laughs> um, the one that you gave me. Oh, really? Okay. I got the one from Scott, and then I, I sent it to you as well, because Scott uh, sent me a whole bunch of chapterized files. So I, 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 what I, I said a tweet, something like, I welded it back together. <laughs> I don't know. You, you did, but the, the, the version you, the, the, that version was by, was not by Bronson Pichot. It was by, uh-huh. it was by like somebody, it was somebody else. It was like a book. Might have been a the, book to the blind narrator. Yeah, it was a book to the blind narrator. Mm-hmm. So when, when Scott was raving about the uh, narrow or the or the narration by Brad Smithers, like, wait, what? <laughs> I didn't get that. Oh, well, he I mean, was, I mean, was he was awesome. I mean, that, yeah, he's very this is one of the the, the finest of audiobooks I've heard in the last while. It's I mean, it wasn't a bad the, audiobook version, mm-hmm. but it was cl- it was clearly just just a version qua version. I feel yeah. like I kind of missed out now, but yeah, so. It definitely was the original 1954 version. I was wondering about that. That was one of my questions, whether the Bronson Pinchot version was the original or the revised. Apparently, they're both from the revised, which is good because the revised is better. Even though even though, even though, though he was a younger author then. Yeah. Well, some, and, sometimes and I, the I, was very, I was very surprised to find this is one of the first things he wrote. Nice. Yeah, this is this is very early, Paul Anderson. Yeah, very very early, and um, wow. Sometimes there's so much Paul Anderson more... I have not read. I mean, I, I like Jesse. I've always been kind of lukewarm toward him. I read, uh, you know, some novellas and things, and I thought that they were good. Some of them were hard to get into, um, but the High Crusade was. I loved it, and then uh, this book. Now I'm wondering what else I'm missing. Um, have you have you have you read Three Hearts and Three Lions? No, I haven't. If you if you liked this, you'll love that, all which right, means I'm Jesse gonna... won't like it at all. <laughs> I'm writing it down. Not 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 for you, Jesse. Three it's Hearts. It's on the appendix Lions. end list. Yep. It, yep, with with good reason because that story is about a World War II Danish officer who winds up lit, dropped into a land of fairy, and much much to his surprise, he has roots here that he never knew about and that's all I'm going to say about that. Isn't that the plot of the Wonder Woman movie? No. Okay. It's not the plot of the Wonder Woman movie. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's No. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. If it if it was, Paul Anderson did it first. Okay. Yeah. Um I I, w- I was going to say maybe one of the reasons that it did get a revised version is not because, you know, he felt that it needed to be revised and made better. But rather, um, for copyright reasons, um, if if I didn't check into the status of the original, but if the original's uh, in in the public domain, he can get his copyright back by fiddling with it, huh. right? And uh, yeah, that yeah, might I don't know. He, he published it in 1954 and revised it in 71. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, I don't know. But but the la- the language in this book is just beautiful. I mean, oh, there's yeah. there's. There's poetry, there's scalding, there's evocative descriptions. I'm going to read a little bit. This is this is when Scofflock and the the Celtic uh, seed god Mammon are on the on their journey. 
Now that's the way, said Mananon. He and Scoplock sprang into the boat and raised the bright sail. The man took the steering oar, and the god struck a wailing, rippling melody from his carven harp and sang, Wind, I call thee, thou unresting, from the deeps of sea and sky. Blow me outward on my questing, answer me with eager cry. From the hills of home behind me, out through the restless leagues of sea, blow, wind, blow, my song shall bind thee. South wind, sea wind, come to me, come to set my vessel free. How can you not? How can you say no to that? <laughs> it's awesome. I love it. That's good. Yeah, I love it. And I liked um, one of the things that I, I particularly was interested in in this book. Once it started, I started to see it happening. Was the overlap between Christianity and the Norse religions? Because um, you've got Odin and Thor in here. Um, Odin specifically. And then they are, there's also lots of references to uh, the white Christ and Christianity. Mm-hmm. And Paul Anderson in his notes said, um, you know, it's true that there were a lot of half-converted people, you know, at that time where they're like, have one foot in Christianity and one foot in the, in the older ways. And I, mm-hmm. I just found that fascinating. And um, uh, one of the moments that uh, was really interesting to me was when... Um, the couple, Scaflock and, uh, oh, what's her name? I can't remember. His sister. Spoiler. <laughs> what? That, Freda, that, that, Freda, that, right. When they, yeah, when they finally realize, because they're told, in an awesome scene where, where uh, Scaflock has basically, not resurrected, but uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, established comms with um, all of these... Uh, people that in his family that have been killed, but he didn't realize it was his, his family yet. Um, so a ghost basically tells them, uh, "Hey, your brother and sister." And then Freda is like, "Okay, well we're done. That's it. You know, we're done because God says so. That's the rules, right? Just like Jesse was saying, that's the rules." And there was no question in her mind that this is what had to be. And uh, even though it was painful. I thought that and, was and really yet, interesting. I thought it was. And, and, and yet she feels torn, and mm-hmm. they have this tangled relationship. She takes up with the other guy who gets killed by that demon sword. <laughs> That's right. But at the end, she goes rushing to her brother, her lover, and is there when he and dies. He's there too late, right? It, it, it's 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 it, that's the tragedy. That's, that's what the tragedy, makes me cry. right? And it, and it, and it rings. Like, oh, no. It's like Greek uh, Greek uh, myth. Um, there's just so much. There's echoes of so many things in here, and, and that's what I loved about it, along with that language that you're talking about. I mean, I highlighted so many things that I thought were just beautifully written. Somebody said the the ending was rushed in one of the reviews well, I, I would read. I would agree with that. Um, it, it was sort of, uh, especially the way that, um, gosh, why am I losing my names? What is the name of the, the uh, let's see. Valgard? Valgard, yes. Maybe it was- Sorry. Yeah, Valgard. The way that he died was, I'm just like, really? But it, it was like he was killed by the sword um, and, wait, wait, by itself. Wait, wait, which is kind of evocative that Morcock would steal for Elric and his uh, own sword. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I wonder if there's echoes from uh, somewhere else for that. So he was killed by the device itself, right? Yeah. By this thing that they woke up. Um, yes. And it, it was so... So uh, Scaflock 
didn't do it himself, the device did it. And that's an interesting thing to consider, too. It was uh, Blyler, actually, uh, E.F. Blyler. Uh-huh. He, he, he was a guy who wrote um, tons and tons of reviews or summaries, uh, summary slash reviews of pretty much every fantasy and science fiction book ever published in the 20th century. <laughs> um, and uh, he said, the first portion of the novel is perhaps the finest American heroic fantasy with good characterizations, excellent surface deal to detail, good plotting, an admirable recreation of the mood of the old Norse literature. But the story ends with a mad scramble and unconvincing slaughter. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it reminded me a little bit of Hamlet. Um, you know, where everybody, everybody's dead at the end. <laughs> yeah. You know, the entire yeah. court in Hamlet dies at the end in, yeah, in not unsimilar circumstances, no, right? It's related to a genre I like, which is noir, right? You yeah. Know, where yeah. you've got a bunch of characters who are basically doomed from the beginning. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good point. That's a um, really good point. Yeah. It, that that it is just, the way that this felt all the way through. You know. it, it, I guess, like, the, the difference is uh in regular noir story the characters doom themselves by their actions whereas here i felt like they uh, i i don't know if it's me who's feeling it it's basically they're doomed because of the their situation in the gods rather than exactly i, I guess there's a choice in there you know when he chooses to ignore the advice about that sword's going to kill you over and over again that sword's gonna really yeah, so, cause problems so in your like, life. You know, he would have to accept what's happening, right, and not fight against it. I but never this, thought thought about it. There, the, I, I guess the pivotal scene to me is like, why is this happening? Was when he calls, he sees a, a raven in the sky, and he calls to it, and mm-hmm. he says, "What's going on, dude?" And the raven's like, "Hey, there's a battle down the road." Oh, the Eaton's good. And he gets really mad and he shoots the, the bird, kills the bird. Bird falls to the ground. And he says, I killed that bird. Damn it. I shouldn't have done that. I'm like, dude, <laughs> why did you do that? Um, and I guess he becomes the werewolf, you know. Uh, but I, I I felt disconnected from from it in a way that I'm never disconnected when I'm reading James M. Cain, you know. And you read James M. Cain is like, this guy is such a jerk. He's plotting against that other dude for no good reason. He's just selfish, but he can't help it. Hmm. And I keep reading. You know? yeah. And I felt connected with it in exactly the same way as yeah. I was with Beowulf. You know, that's 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 where it was stirring me in this same same uh, area of my brain or whatever. This, yeah, it, that's it what should, it did for me. It, it was it was echoes of all that stuff. But it's a thousand a thousand years a gap between them, and I'm like, this is a guy recreating that. Uh huh. Yeah. And it didn't. Uh-huh. It it felt like you know, in the same way that I, I feel like a lot of fantasy writing is just rec- or was. I don't know if it still is recreation of Tolkien. Uh, you know, sort of pale recreation. It's not that this was pale, it's just it was a recreation um, rather than, you know, being a thousand-year-old document that, you know, affected people a thousand years ago. Thinking about that meta aspect of something is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was I was thinking, like, how did this affect people when it came out in 54? Um, I think a lot of people read it and said, hey, that's a good novel. Um, but it doesn't have that gravitas 
of you know this moldery uh, old book that they've translated out of uh, Anglo-Saxon into uh, English, and we we don't know who wrote it, and we know some of it is historical, and a lot of it's bullshit. But the bullshit's right in the text, right? So, yeah, I I'm I'm sorry. Let's hear more quotes because I'm ruining this book. <laughs> No, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, th- this is in the afterword, which I think was the foreword in the the book that we, uh, the audio book. Yes. yes. But it yeah. says, for the benefit of the curious, however, it should be remarked that such parts of the story as deal with purely human beings are as accurate as the scanty records permit. There were many such half-converted Christians as Orm, many forcible exchanges of property, much violence, and, one suspects, much peace and tenderness at times. Our own age is not one which can afford to call its ancestors savage. And that was written in 1954. He's thinking back to World War II and nuclear bombs. And yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, that also applies today just yeah. as much. But so there's, there's a cryptic line in there. I want you to read if you've got it, Scott. Okay. About uh, I was going to allude to this earlier. He talks about um, philosophers and truth. And I was because we've had discussions about you know what's true and that sort of thing. Yeah, I got it. I think that's in tongue in cheek, but let's hear us, uh, Paul. This is frankly a romance, a story of admittedly impossible events and completely non-existent places. Whether or not it is true must be settled by those scientists who argue the reliability of the annals of fairy and those philosophers who are trying to settle what truth itself may be. The historian can only set down the plain tales of the doubtful milieu of fairy and hope that they can be found readable. He can scarcely debate their truth or falsity, especially in these latter days when so much of the patently absurd has become everyday fact and so many of the eternal variables have been shown to be blatant fabrications. Mm. Yeah, so, so I, I think that is tongue in cheek. Um, I think but it I is. love it too. Yeah. It's it's like talking about the truth of what's truth of story, right? Poetic truth, <laughs> right? So yeah. Uh, yeah. philosophers who are trying to settle what truth itself may be, um, to me that that's kind of ridiculous when you're talking about story. You know, story has a truth and a resonance. Um, you know, so unless you're talking about a fact like uh, you know, Dunkirk happened on this day. Um, right. That's a, that's a fact. That's a verifiable fact, but how someone felt during Dunkirk and what it was like for a certain person, that's a story Mm -hmm. and that's poetic truth. Right. Mm -hmm. A philosopher, what, what does a philosopher have to say about the truth of that? Yeah, I think it's, it's hard to, it's hard to criticize anything that's tongue in cheek, you know, because it, it's it it's neither true nor false it's just yeah. you know play, being playful um but uh, like to me uh, there was a really funny cute thing on twitter the other day i'm sure it was in real life somewhere somewhere on the internet um the people were going to talk about the bad geography of of uh middle earth how the rivers go uh, in uh, the wrong direction yeah oh yeah yeah that that was that was that uh... Alex Axe's uh, piece on tour.com because because they had done a piece on how the mountains are crap and this was a follow-up and like how he doesn't know anything about geology really right he's a philologist he says oh I'm gonna make a world so and but like he's the um he's kind of the he did it the opposite way as uh Frank Herbert did Dune right he starts with the geology and the and the uh ecology and then yep. ends up with a story, whereas Tolkien starts with the language and ends up with a story. 
Um, I think why both of those work so incredibly well, even though they both, you know, have problems, different kinds of problems. Basically, Dune is a story about a whole bunch of monsters, <laughs> monsters doing monstrous things to each other, um, with a, a little piece of tenderness here or there. And Lord of the Rings is like, can't we just be nice to each other while all these monsters are ruining the world um, and try and get some courage? So they start in different places. But what makes them, to me, so powerful is that there is some something true about them, even, of course, though both of them are completely 100% fictional. Um, and I think if you were reading a, like I imagine you're like Marissa and you're copy editing somebody's work and you have to read their work and try and improve it by pointing out problems in it right not uh -huh. just fixing the grammar but fixing the fact that you know your story's got problems um what she's fixing there is is a kind of falsity if you see what i mean and i guess is another way of explaining it Obviously, that's not true for a lot of people, but I, I noticed on Goodreads that the reviews were either generally four stars or one star, and that means it's you know, it's got about three point nine or something. But most people who like it um, like it about at the level of four stars. I, I didn't look at the Beowulf reviews. <laughs> Goodreads, I wanted, they must exist, right? <laughs> Goodreads, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but uh, the other problem with Goodreads is you know, everything ends up between, uh, you know, if you get enough reviews, it ends up between two and four stars. Nothing ends up at five, right? Is the Bible in, on Goodreads? I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to go look. I wonder if Gilgamesh the King is on there. You know, the, the Silverberg book. Oh, yeah, surely it is. Yes. Yeah. See, oh, yeah. see, we could do we can we could do that book sometime. Even, yeah, and Gilgamesh the King. Yeah, I think audio. I've you know I'm not positive that I've read that. If not, I've read a part of it. Um, but Gilgamesh the King is like a novelization of the myth. Yes. Right, but it doesn't feel like this. Right? I, I it feels, would it feels like a Gilgamesh novel, the you know? epic rather than uh, somebody's yeah, novel. Yeah, this feels like an epic, right? Yeah, I'd rather do the but actual. Yeah, and in, in, in that part that we read too, he's talking about you know, whether or not it is true must be settled by those scientists who argue the reliability of the annals of fairy. You yeah, know. so he, he's he's making a joke. Exactly. There. Right. Um, but but I uh, <laughs> I care about this stuff, mm -hmm. um, and I I, I I I it's not that I hated it sentence by sentence. It's that. To me, it did ring false somehow, like like I'm reading a novel. That's um, a reconstruction of that. And it, and when I when I played, I didn't play a ton of Dungeons and Dragons. I read all the books and I played a little bit. Um, but I I was always on the low. Is this a high fantasy book? I was going to start the podcast asking that. A high fantasy? Actually, I don't know that definition. So. Okay, um, let's put it yeah, into Wikipedia. Paul, Paul, what's your uh, my, take on high fantasy? Uh, my take is high, high fantasy versus low fantasy. Low fantasy is generally low magic, yeah, down and down and dirty. Um, Fafford and the Great Mouse are generally low fantasy, even though 
it's set in a secondary world. So I'm looking right, at the but there's not a lot, but there's generally not a lot of magic and that magic's not well Agreed. understood. Whereas but also I've, notice in that, in that, that they try to use science to defeat the magic in there. Um, in at least some of the stories, uh, there's a story, I can't remember which one it is. Pretty sure this is a Fafford and Grey Mauser story. Grey Mauser's having a duel with some wizard in the street and the wizard like shooting off electrical bolts or something from his power stave or whatever it is. And uh, Mauser has his sword with a little coil of wire going to the ground so that every time he gets shot on an electrical bolt, it he's grounded, right? And it's like, oh, okay, right? It's, it's trying to reconcile the two. Science and magic. Whereas right. high, high fantasy is much more a lot of traditional Dungeons and Dragons sort of let's let's shoot the fireballs at each other sort of so, sort of epic, epic sort of cataclysmic. What I imagine, magic. you know, 15th level or 50th level magic users in Dungeons and Dragons oh, are doing oh, all day. Oh, yeah, well, let's put it this way. Low fantasy is first level characters. High fantasy is 15th <laughs> level characters. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, uh, like I love Robert E. Howard's Conan stories, and they tend to have a little bit of magic. But not but, a lot. But the magic tends to be also the bad guy, right? So it's kind of the opposite. The magic sword sort of uh, mentality, which obviously comes out of uh, Excalibur and uh, King Arthur and all that stuff, which which I do really dig, by the way, um, at least some versions of it, uh, is... Um, I'm not. I'm not a fan of magic swords. I just like. I, I like that Conan doesn't care what what knife he's using to stab the monster. He just needs to kill that monster. And his human thews, uh, though very jaguar like or whatever, are just human. There's no magic blessings in them at all. Uh, you know, there's no uh, special potion that he drinks and gets the strength of ten, you know, hell trolls or whatever it is. Um, Push so, I'm going to read this uh, genre overview from High Fantasy Wikipedia entry. High Fantasy is defined as a set, uh, as set in an alternate fictional, quote unquote, secondary world rather than the real or primary world. So here, that's not exactly true, right? The secondary world is usually internally consistent, but its rules differ from those of the primary world. By co contrast, low fantasy is characterized by being set in the primary or real world or a rational and familiar fictional world with the inclusion of magical elements. I, I, I think this definition is really problematic for every it, every it, kind of genre I'm or yeah, not I'm thinking about. Yeah, it's not a definition that I agree with. I mean, that's not the way I divide low and high fantasy. I mean, it's a definition you can work with, but it's not one yeah. that I particularly am interested in. I mean, you get to the whole idea of epic versus... Sword and sorcery. I mean, low fantasy is more sword and sorcery, whereas epic fantasy is more high fantasy. Mm. It's, well, it's I, a matter of scale. It's a matter of scale. It's a matter of stakes. It's a matter of how much magic do the do the actual protagonists use magic? That's usually a good and use magic on a large basis. I mean, not just drinking a potion of hill giant strength. Mm -hmm. if, they, if they are, it's generally more high fantasy if they're casting the fireballs rather than the wizard casting fireballs at them. 
and they all understand what the wizard is doing and just have to stab him through the gut with Conan's sword. Mm. That's low fantasy. When, yeah. you're, when, they, the when they show the movie of, of Conan, right, they give him a, a, an Atlantean sword, right? Because that's sort of in the tradition of Excalibur or whatever. But in the actual stories, he just has whatever broadsword he took off some dead guy. Right? It, it doesn't yeah. matter what the, the the magic is in his manliness, right? Him being an actual human who, like, I don't know, maybe it's because he's so genetically awesome being an Atlantean. But it, it, there's no magic to it at all. It's about willpower, sort of. Um, here, their doom is kind of the same way. It's kind of like they were born to be screwed. These guys, all these characters are born to be screwed. And they don't seem to know themselves either. And I, 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 that is straight out of the Volsunga saga, right? And from from um, Beowulf as well. That They don't know themselves as uh, they don't understand their own thoughts. They're almost pre-conscious in a certain sense. Um, as opposed to, and Scott, we did a show on this, many shows, um, Odysseus, right? Who is kind of the opposite. He's all about, I've made mistakes. And... I'm going to make more. <laughs> Here I go. Yeah. Right? And then when he ties himself to the mast, right, it's a deliberate act of I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to wring all the pleasures I can out of this world. But in the end, I'm going to go home and kick some ass and get my wife back. Right. It's He's not doomed to the fates that uh, are oppressing him because – He's got, you know, guidance from one goddess or something, or maybe just because he's he's the least stupid of all the uh, what, what what are the archives? I don't know all the guys from yeah right yeah. The but Greeks. you're saying you're Great saying Indians. in saying that you're saying that Paul Anderson um, is sticking with the tradition that he's writing in. Yes, 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 hundred okay. percent. Yeah. And and that northern that northern tradition is it it is a bunch of guys who don't really know themselves, mm. right? They they but in Beowulf at least they 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 I I like that hint that in uh, what was the one version of the I think is the movie version of uh, written by Neil Gaiman of Beowulf he has one of the characters say um, when he's talking about the sea battle with the with the uh, giant sea monster he uh-huh. says wow it only had six eyes in the last, or, there was only six sea monsters in the last time he told this story and there's like nine now right mm-hmm. every time he tells the story it becomes more inflated with uh that and it it's very have either of you read um uh that uh h rider haggard novel i mentioned no uh, well. uh yeah i think you both quite like it um, what the heck is the name of it? I mentioned it off the top. I guess it's in the Wikipedia entry. Um, uh, yeah, era, Eric Bright Eyes, the saga of Eric Bright Eyes. It's, um, it's got a witch. It's got magic, magic items. It's very uh, lang- linguistically similar to this and because it's doing the same thing, right? Um, I guess because it's more, even more historical, yeah it's, yeah, yeah, it's set in uh, set in Iceland as I as I'm reading here. Mm-hmm. Er, Eric 
Thor Grimerson, nicknamed Bright Eyes for his most notable trait, strives to win the hand of his beloved Garuda the Fair. Her father, Asmund, a priest of the Old Norse gods, opposes the match, thinking Eric a man without prospects. But deadly by far, the intrigues of Swanhild, Garuda's half-sister and a sorceress who desires Eric for herself. She proceeds to chief in Aspagar, Blacktooth, the wood Garuda, making the two men enemies. Battles, intrigues, and treachery follow. Mm-hmm. There's Hagen um, wrote the book following a trip to Iceland. There's also, um, and he's you know he's not untalented. That guy, H. Ryder Haggard, um, he's not my favorite writer either. But um, I was thinking also there is something very Viking that I really really love, and no one else loves. Called uh, it's usually called the Viking trilogy, I guess. Um, very very slim volumes. Um, by Henry Treese. He's a UK author. Uh, all three of them are public domain in Canada anyways. And they're up on the PDF page. The first one's called Viking Dawn. Second is The Road to Miklagard. And the third is uh, Viking Sunset. Adding them up, they're just over 500 pages. They're YA style, at least, if not actual YA. Um, because the first novel has... Uh, the main character as a youth, um, and he travels from Viking Ireland, uh, or I don't know, Viking Denmark to Viking Ireland, and kills some folks. And then road to Miklagard, he's a full adult man in the prime of his power, and goes on a voyage to Miklagard, aka Istanbul, aka Constantinople. Um, and that's pretty awesome. Becomes a Varangian guard. And then the third and final novel is like it's the capper that makes the series so good. Uh-huh. Um, he goes to North America and gets into a war uh, against uh, I don't know Eric the Red's brother or something, right? Who who's fled all the way to some you know these werewolf style Vikings who break the code and kill their own brother or whatever. He chases them all the way to North America where he gets them. Biotic allies and uh, I don't know Harry's the the coasts of uh, the Great Lakes and it's like that's awesome no fantasy elements at all really it's just historical um, and very simple language as opposed to this which is it is very much in the tradition of Beowulf with the with the alliterative language you, you, you have millions of quotes Scott you wanted to throw down some Sure, yeah, sure. I can do that. Let me just look here. Um, After Scott goes, I have, so, I have something I want to pick up and, and read. Because okay. I didn't catch that the first two times I read I read this book, but I caught it this time. I'll throw it down now. Yeah, okay, so, mm-hmm. so so it turns out that although he didn't write it, this book has a sequel hook. Did it you does, catch yeah. that? I did. Okay. But tell me, tell me. What's okay, okay, okay. So when Odin takes uh, Scaflock's child from Freyda... What will you do with him? She moaned. What do you want him for? The huntsman, that is Odin, loomed huge and shadowy over her. His destiny is high and terrible, quoth he. Not yet is this game of Acer and Jotuns and the new gods played out. The devil sword still gleams on the chessboard of the world. I gave it to Scathlock because Bolvark would on no account have it anew for an Asgard. Scathlock and the sword were needed to drive back the trolls whom Utgard Loki had been secretly helping to gain power 
lest Fairy be held by a race friendly to the enemies of the gods. But Scathlaw cannot be let keep the sword, or he will seek to wipe out the trolls altogether, and this the Jotuns would not stand for, so if they would move against Alfheim, then the gods would have to move against them, and then the end of the world would be at hand. Scathlaw must die, and this child whom I wove my web to have begotten and given me must inherit the sword and finish its destiny. There's a sequel right there. Yeah, Scathlaw's child gets the sword back and starts Ragnarok. Pity Polaris never wrote the book. That would have been awesome. Yeah, as, as soon as I was done, I, I looked to see if he had written a sequel, and as far as I can tell, he didn't. Sadly, no, tragically, no. He didn't yeah. There, there was a comic book adaptation that was started in the 60s, and I, I saw a couple pages of that. Um, I tried to track them down, but the volumes uh, that exist are not, not accessible. Um Nice art, though. Um, yeah. What he got? What he got for us, Scott? Yeah. Um, so here, near the very beginning, um, I just like this passage. Finally, he paused before a great door of brass-barred oak. It was green with moss and dark with age and cold with the dew of the inner earth, and only Imric had the keys to the three mighty locks. These he opened, muttering certain words, and swung the ponderous door back. It groaned. For three hundred years had passed since he had last opened it. A woman of the troll race sat within the little cell. She wore only the bronze chain, heavy enough to anchor a ship, which fastened her by the neck to the wall. Light from a torch ensconced outside the door fell dimly on her huge, squat, mighty-muscled form. That's good stuff right there. That That is good stuff. Okay, I, I, I have one of my own, and this is... Okay. Early on, and this is one of the sad things. I mean, this book is full of sadness because it's a tragedy, but this is early in Scathlock's life where he runs into the fallen. There are none save me hereabouts, he said. I am in exile. Whence came you hither, fawn? I came from the lands of the south after great Pan was dead and the new god whose name I cannot speak was come to Hellas. There was no more place for the old gods and the old beings who haunted the land. The priests cut down the sacred grove and build a church. Oh, I remember the dryad screams quibbling voicelessly on the still hot air and seeming to hang there forever. They ring yet in my ears. They always will. The fawn shook his horned head. I fled north, he said, but I wonder if those of my ancient comrades who stayed and fought and were slain with exorcisms were not wiser. Long and long has it been, elf boy, and lonelier than it was long. Tears glimmered in the fawn's eyes. The nymphs and the fawns and the very gods are dead, thus blowing on desolate winds. The temples stand empty, white under the sky, and slowly they topple to ruin. And I, I wander alone in a foreign land, Scorned by its gods and shunned by its people. It is a land of mist and rain and soul-freezing iron winters. Angry gray skies and pale sunlight spearing through hurrying clouds. No more of blue sky and sapphire ocean, creamy white in its gentle swells. No more of little rocky islands and the dear warm groves where the white nymphs waited for us. No more of grapes hanging from ancient vines and figs heavy trees heavy with fruit. No more of the stately gods on high Olympus. Mm. He's the last of his kind, and he knows it, and that's so sad. He's stuck here on stuck here in England, far away from a lost Greece. Doesn't that doesn't that tug at your heart, Jesse? I've read that story, um, and it's much better. It's called "The Grove of Ashtaroth" by John Buchan. Um, 
Uh, I've read uh, that story, too. We did a podcast on it. I know. Uh, Christopher Hitchens says, in a remarkable story, the Grove of Ashtaroth, the hero finds himself obliged to destroy the gorgeous little temple of a sensual cult because he believes that by doing so, he will salvage the health and sanity of a friend, but simultaneously believes himself to be committing an unpardonable act of desecration. And the eerie voice that beseeches him to stay his hand is unmistakably feminine. So this is... um, so like that arbitrary rule is like, okay, the Greek gods are not allowed to say the uh, name of the white Christ. In a certain sense, like he's the real god, and the other gods are fake gods, right? In this no, sort of no, quasi no, no. universe. No, 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 and no, 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 way no, no. That Neil I'm stopping Gaiman, right there. Okay, I'm stopping right there. That's not. It's not a matter of fake and real gods. It's a matter of who and how much power a particular deity has it the farm has no power which is why he can't speak christ's name whereas other gods still have power they can it's a matter they're not a matter of fake and real it's a matter of what who and what people believe in and that's what give these gods these their power or lack of power you don't believe in the gods anymore they dry up and they fall to new gods yeah, in this see, story, see American Gods by Neil Gaiman. <laughs> yeah, see American Gods by Neil Gaiman. In this story, the Aesir are still powerful, and there's even, there's even a quote in here where they mention that yeah, that the Aesir have not yet fallen to uh, to to uh, the Christian God. So it's a matter yeah. of where the power is, where the juice is. They can. I I, I fall, yeah, I'm 100 in agreement there. It's it it is kind of like who's on the rise and who's on the on the outs, right? And the fawn is not Pan, right? No, no the fawn is a follower of Pan. But so the, the fawn has no power to go speak Christ. This name is or- not, yeah, and this is not unique. I, I'm this last few weeks I've been reading a really terrific short story by Francis Stevens um, called "The Elf Trap," which is set in a, uh, it says North Carolina or the Carolinas, but it's actually in Kentucky. Um, and it's in the in a real place that's just like out in the woods somewhere, and and the main character it, we're hearing about it through his diary, where he's basically in contact with the elf world, um, and they yeah they they work silver right they work um, they can't touch iron. Um, there's all these rules right that are the arbitrary rules, and that that story um, has a scientist a biologist you know the sort of not seeing what he's actually seeing. He doesn't understand their elves. We understand their elves, but he doesn't understand them because he's so focused on his, uh, you know, microbiology. And uh, that interaction between what is real was just sort of arbitrary power uh-huh. is so interesting to me. But when we've got, like, why are the, some characters in this book not allowed to touch iron? I don't know. It's the rules. That's right? the trolls. Rule. Trolls in in Tolkien, right? They can't go out during the sun, daylight. I'm not sure why, but that's the rules. But we I, we also I, don't I, see. I mean, he he even says it in the afterward about this. Yeah. I mean, assume such an alien metabolism might have its own penalties in an inability to adore the glare and actinic light of the sun or the disastrous electro chemical reactions induced by contact with iron or silver. So mm-hmm. why 
should not these handicapped immortals compensate by discovering aluminum, beryllium, magnesium, right. and steel-like properties of many, many non-ferrous alloys? Right. He, I mean, he's, he set up the premise that, yeah, that, that that's how the rules work, and he, he tries to make it as rational he's, as possible. Yeah, he's, he's kind of doing a... He's doing a science fictiony take on on it because he is a science fiction writer ultimately. Yes, uh, and and so when he isn't being playful with the tongue in cheek sort of stuff, he is trying to make it make sense. There's, I'm not going to spoil for Scott because Scott's going to read it. Mm-hmm. Three hearts is, and three lions. There is, there's a scene in Three Hearts and Three Lions which which marries this whole fantasy with the science take. And it's a wonderful scene. And it makes like when I first read it, it's like. Oh my God, that makes perfect sense, of course. But I don't want to say what and where it is because that would spoil it completely. But there is a, there is a scene that really captures this whole idea of science versus fantasy and how they can intertwine and make sense of each other. Nice. Do you have another quote for us, Scott? Oh, sure. Um, let's see. Uh, there's a lot, a lot to choose from, but uh, there's there's a scene where the devil shows up. And yes. He's talking to the witch, and um, he's he's gonna. Well, I'll just read it. He says the devil's strange deep eyes, in which were little flickering flames, colder than winter itself, brooded long on her. So here, flickering flames, colder than winter itself. Um, you know that's Dante. Um, the Aesir are not out of this matter. He said slowly. Odin, who knows the future, has some purpose of his own. I knew him of old in my incarnation of Loki, and I liked it not. But you shall have my help. Power and knowledge and strength will I give you until you become a mighty witch. Also, I will tell you the only way to strike, and that is that way is certain unless your enemies are wiser than you think. There are three powers in the world which not gods nor demons nor men can stay, against which no magic shall prevail and no might shall stand, and they are the white Christ, time, and love. Mm. Yeah, I like it. You know, and that's, that's again, that's that mythic stuff. Um, but uh, it's interesting that the, the devil says here, uh, I knew him of old in my incarnation of Loki. Mm. You know? Yeah, that... Because, yeah. There, there's a, yeah. Go ahead. There's a bit of comparative mythology and, like, Things as other things because the the, uh, the trolls mentioned getting fairies from all around the world to join in their battle from China and from India. So there's a whole sorts of like this is this and this kind of maps with that uh-huh. sort of overlap of uh, different mythologies and uh, powers being incarnations of each other. That that's a very very old idea when the Romans just basically stole the Greek pantheon and said, oh yeah. Jupiter is really Zeus, and Zeus is really Jupiter, and Minerva is Athena, and we're all fine with that now, right? Yeah. And when, when and when they invaded Gaul, like, oh yeah, that that Celtic god, he's really Mercury. So cool. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, and here's a, here's a paragraph that uh, sort of talks about the half Christianity of Orm, uh, the father, right? Once mm-hmm. Alfreda had the priest come to talk to him, and uh, him being um, uh, Valgard. Right, because Valgard as a kid was becoming difficult to handle. Um, once Alfreda had the priest come to talk to him, and Valgard laughed in his face. I have no use for your sniveling god, he said, or for any other gods for that matter. 
insofar as appealing to them makes any sense at all, I think my father's sacrifices to the Aesir of are, are of more use than whatever prayers he or you give to Christ. For if I were a god, I might well be bribed by blood and burnt offerings to send good luck. But any who dared annoy me with a mealy-mouthed prayer, I would stamp on so. And he brought his heavy-shod foot down on the priests. Orm roared with laughter when he heard of it, and Alfreda's tears were of no avail, so the priest got no satisfaction out of the matter. Mm. You know, that that's some deep stuff right there, because, you know, Orm, you know, how he's raising his son, um, you know, uh, Alfreda, who, who sees what's coming, you know, sees him getting out of control, and uh, is uh, uh, definitely sad, you know. This is this is deep mother, or uh, yeah, husband wife son dynamic stuff going on in a mythic setting. I wanted to ask you guys what you thought of this because I I didn't know what to make of it either. Uh, maybe well I don't know if it's either. Let's see what you think. Um, when uh, our hero is making comparisons uh, between his beautiful uh, elf girlfriends and his human girlfriend. He finds the elf maidens are kind of mocking in everything they say. Um, and the human woman's like just straight up. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, what? what's going on with that? Because, uh, you know, what I like about Lord of the Rings is elves are interesting from a distance, right? We see them from the Hobbit's point of view. Um, if you if you told me we're gonna run a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, and you want to be an elf, I'd be I'd be like, oh, you're one of those guys. <laughs> Whatever those guys are, I don't know what they're they are, but you're one of those guys. Um, I'm not sure like what that means exactly, but what did you take? What's your take on that? I don't know. Uh, my, my take, I don't have that passage in front of me um but my take was that he is not part of them and he always felt that he wasn't even though he really tried to be he's not an elf mm-hmm. right so so with her he found companionship and and there was uh, one of the elves i think it was the one that acted as his mom so kind of his foster mother she said mm-hmm. uh like calls to like leia yeah yeah mm-hmm. that's her a white loveliness in the moonlight with her hair like silver and her eyes cloudy with cold mystery. To quote, quote she, I mean, I mean, it, the novel makes a good sense that, yes, while Scaplock's been adopted by Emmerich and Leia and raised as a child and raised to be an elf, he really isn't an elf any, any more that, than Valgard is a human. They're both kind of been ripped out of their rightful places and this novel's kind of about them trying to find their real places. I mean, Valgard eventually joins with the trolls because that's where he really belongs. And Scaffold tries to make a, make a life with his lady love, even though it's his sister. And he ultimately, they both ultimately fail because, well, it's a Norse story and it's going to be a tragedy, but they're both trying to find where they find a world where they really fit in and they don't fit in where they started because of Imric's machinations. And in the end, they finally are on opposite sides of a battlefield and 
die within moments of each other in that effort to try to find find their destiny and find their place. Yeah, that's great stuff. You know, it, it again, is. again, that's mythic from the very first one, right? It is, it is you know, mythic. Gilgamesh from, is was a king that was so awesome that he had nowhere to fit in. Right? Yeah. He would get bored and and then until he found Enkidu, he didn't even have an equal. You know, so it was a the you know, the same story here. Elements of it anyway. Mhm. Yep. But yeah, but the 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 women elves are definitely not human and 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 and, and they're as dangerous as the men if not more so. Both like the, the final siege at the end. Bows twanged from the darkness inside. Troll sank and Valgard staggered back with an arrow through his left hand. Leia's voice jeered at him. Sweet, poisonous mockery. The elf women guard this place for their lovers. Better lovers than we have had lately had, oh, you ape of Scaplock. <laughs> uh, I've, like, I've been reading a... Um... Uh, a lot of those old dun- uh, dragon magazines. Um, I, I got a box of them, and they've just been sitting in my closet. And uh, at the back of uh, back of every issue of Dragon Magazine, they had uh, a whole bunch of like little cartoons. Mm-hmm. And um, I just realized that some of them are, you know, they are. <laughs> there's this thing in uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, and probably it comes straight out of Elric and this. Um, where you've got an intelligent sword, a sword that has its own will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there's one of those cartoons uh, where the uh, the character is talking to another character about his sword, and he says, it, it, "Yeah, it's it's tough when your sword is has a higher intelligence than you do." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, yeah, exactly." Like. Um, the man doesn't know himself. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't know himself, and that to me is like, oh, that's such a tragedy. It's a tragedy, but it's. I'm not sure what to do about it. Well, where's my place in this world, right? I don't know. I don't know how I would live in the in a Norse saga. I think I'd be one of those guys who's killed right at the beginning, because I'm like, <laughs> there's nothing I can do about it. Um, there's all these, um, you know. Very powerful forces. Um, there's not a lot of uh, discussions that uh, don't lead to sword dances and stuff. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's not lots of meaty dis- discussion of ideas and themes that you would like for. This is much more. This is this is a novel as you've as you've kind of said for Dungeons and Dragons players, and since I. I'm a long-time D&D player. That's why I fell for this novel years ago. And you know how, and I play a Dungeons and Dragons-like game, and I will be leaving after this podcast to do that. So that sort of feeling, <laughs> yeah. that's, that sort of feeling is something that's always deep inside of me. So delving back into this world, it was very, very, very welcome to, Especially because I, I was glad to see the original, and not the uh, the bastardized, corrected version. I, I'd still like to know the story of why the heck he decided he needed to do that. The, the the original The original has the original is much more raw and mythic, and better better language for its uh, 
cadence is than uh, the changed version. I just don't understand why he did it. Yep. There's a uh, five-star review on Goodreads here that it's just uh, two sentences. Brutal, romantic, and tragic. Uh, and then next sentence, no cute hobbits. <laughs> yep. yep, there are no cute oh, hobbits. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Well, I guess we got a show out of this. That's nice. Here, Sorry, gonna, I didn't like it more. Can I read you? Uh, this is not for the podcast, but I uh, I want to read you one of my favorite passages in Beowulf. Sure. This is Beowulf paragraph. Who's got the noisy chair there? Squeaky chair. Squeaky chair? It must be Paul. That's me. <clears throat> Scott, Paul, Squeaky you got to get some oil. <laughs> here, Dick is out. A few miles from here... This is the Seamus Haney version, by the way. Uh, a few miles from here, a frost-stiffened wood waits and keeps watch above a mirror. The overhanging bank is a maze of tree roots mirrored in its surface. At night there, something uncanny happens. The water burns. And the mirror bottom has never been sounded by the sons of men. On its bank, the heather stepper halts. The heart and flight from pursuing hounds will turn to face them with firm-set horns and die in the wood rather than dive beneath its surface. That is no good place. Love Here's that. one from, Love from uh, The Broken Sword. Give me leave, Lord, and I will be the best of your hounds. But if a dog be driven out, he will become a wolf and feed on his master's flocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's another one here. Happier are all the men than the dwellers in the ferry, or the gods, for that matter. Better a life like a falling star, bright across the dark, than a deathlessness that can be see, that can see not above or beyond itself. The day draws nigh when fairy shall fade, and the Errol King himself shrink to a woodland sprite, and then to nothing, and the gods go under. And the worst of it is, I cannot believe it wrong that the immortals will not live forever. It it's it see that see, this is why it's so good, Jesse. <laughs> it, it, it it's it's, good, it's yeah. got that deep, deep dark vein of tragedy and sorrow and striving against fate. It's uh, I'm sorry that you didn't like this. I recommend well, this to you. Right. It. It's all right. it's 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 not the end of the world. Uh, I I found it hard for me to pay attention to cuz I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> My mind wander away from it. I'm like, right, right, right. I got to be back on this book. Got it, got it. <laughs> that's, not, um, that's not how I want to, you know, read my books. Um, so it, it's not your fault. I, I should have done more research. Um, but I, I kind of, it makes sense because, you know, Moorcock is a, he's a guy I don't like his writing. You know, I'm not interested in his stories. Um, and it's because he's so inspired by this, I think. Huh. This is definitely a nerd text for him. Yeah. I mean, um, what's his name? Um, not, not, uh, Elric, um, um, John Dacre, the, uh, that particular eternal champion. He's a guy that 
is awakened from a tomb by the humans because the el- because the elves are oppressing them. He goes fights the elves. He gets the elves down to one city. Then he falls in love with the elves and realizes the elves are really the civilized ones. And he then turns around and fights the humans on their behalf, knowing that yeah, it can't ever work out wherever he stays. And that that sort of uh, doomed sort of fighting for not quite sure what you believe in, but trying to find your place is very Paul Anderson esque. Mm. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe when I was a kid, I would have liked it. I'm not sure. I I, I I just like it it didn't do anything for me and it's it's not because there was anything wrong with it as much as um yeah I think it was just lacking ideas. I don't know, and to I, me it just rang that bell. It just yeah. echoes of all yeah. this other stuff that I saw in it. And it wasn't badly written. No, nope, I don't it was very well. I mean it had a lot of mm-hmm. battles and I complained about the battles in Lord of the Rings too. I don't care about those. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, Tolkien was not good at battles, and he was not good at geography. <laughs> well, it's it's not that it, it, the point of Alex's post is not only that the Tolkien's map doesn't make good sense of geological per- principles. You get thousands of fantasy novels that just copy yeah. Tolkien's map, and they don't have the they don't have the excuses Tolkien has. Oh, oh yes, the Valar did it. The God did it. Sauron did it too. And so you wind up with tons of fantasy novels with crappy maps because they're just copying Tolkien. Mm. And it there's drives story. it drives people crazy. It drives there's me crazy. A, there's a story I, I, I think we might uh, consider doing. Um, so I'm, I'm a big Conan fan, right? Um, and one of the things they do in, in, uh, in the comics, especially they have the map, right, in the of the Hyborian Age map, circa 10,000 BC, right? Um, and it has Samaria and Media and Aquilonia and Ophir and Stygia and all the all the places, right? And up at the top, there's Asgard and Vanaheim, right? So you've got the Scandinavian places and uh, you you've got the African places, and it's all basically one continent. That's sort of Africa and Asia and uh, Europe all put together. Um, and I think that that's a mistake because the gra- it makes the um, geography very concrete, right? You know, this place borders that at that place and that, that latitude and all that stuff. I'm not sure that uh, I'm pretty sure that um, it says from a map prepared by Robert E. Howard. Um, I think that that it's much better when you don't actually have that map because these are all just places and you sort of get a sense of them, but you don't have to. Um, Place the particular stories. Well, there's a story. Um, I'll see if I can get the name of it here. And uh, if you guys are interested in it, um, I will uh, see about getting it narrated. Um, let's see. It's a valley. Uh, I've got 20 titles. So this is a Conan story. Yeah, it's a Conan story, but it's interesting because it's it's. Um, let's see, Valley of Silent Men. Yeah, one of these no. days, I need to read one of those. If I you was never to read, read one, one never having read one, which is what I am, what would you oh, recommend? Always, I always recommend the same one, which is uh, um, Queen of the Black Coast. Okay. Because it's, it's super epic. Um, and it's tragedy. And it's short. And uh, Yeah, I just have never, never gotten into Conan or anything. 
like, huh. I don't read much fantasy. You know, I don't read much epic fantasy. I've read is... Lord of the Rings. I've read um, Sword of Shannara. In fact, I read all th- the first trilogy in high school or something. And uh, I've read just some some others. I've read uh, Ilmet and Lank- Lankmar. Like, yeah. Yeah, that's Fafnir and the Great Mouser. Yeah. Not a lot. So of, this, not a lot of fantasy. This... This one is not his... In fact, this is his least popular, I think, um, Conan story ever. But I found it to be incredibly interesting. Oh, wait, no, not The Valley of the Worm. I'm sorry, that's not the right one. Um, What the hell is it called? Okay, let's see if I can sort by Canada. Uh, hmm. No. What the hell is it called? Uh, hmm. Uh, Conan... um, Conan. I will do a search on Twitter to find my the name of it. I can't remember it. But anyways, it's about it's an it's set in Africa. Uh, you know the Conan version of Africa, and Conan's a real, uh, basically rapist guy in that particular story. Um, not uh, our hero, uh, really. He he gets his bloodlust up to the point where he's basically about to rape somebody, and then doesn't the last second. Um, but he then has a, a fight with a god, uh, which he doesn't lose. <laughs> um, and I think it's very, it's kind of like a very Christian, um, sort of, uh, God, uh, symbolism going on in it, but it seems to be his least, um, loved story. But let me just see. Queen of the Black Coast is on the PDF page, by the way. Okay. Canadian and Conan. Let's see if I can read it. Vale of Lost Women. I was saying, uh, typing in Valley. Okay. Uh, let's see. Oh, maybe I never posted it. Pretty sure I... Vale. V-A-L-E. There it is. This is published in 1967. Which is long after Howard, for almost forty years after he killed himself. Um, it's not super long; seventeen pages, including copyright page. Um, here's the first paragraph: The thunder of the drums and the great elephant tusk horns was deafening, but in Livia's ears, the clamor seemed but a confused muttering dull and far away as she lay on the on the angareb which is like a uh, bed i looked it up in the great hut her state bordered between delirium and semi-consciousness outward sounds and movements scarcely impinged upon her senses her whole mental vision was though dazed and chaotic was centered with hideous certitude on the naked writhing figure of her her brother blood streaming down his quivering thighs Against a dim nightmare background of dusky interweaving shapes and shadows, that white form was limed in merciless and awful clarity. The air seemed still to pulsate with an agonized scream mingled interwoven obscenely with a rustle of fiendish laughter. So basically there's this woman, she's been, what's that vocab word for when you knock a guy, knock a woman over the head and grab, throw her over your shoulder and steal her back to your own village? Yeah. yeah. Starts with an R. What's it called? Are rip. it's not uh, rip. rapacious, maybe? Huh. 
Huh. I can't remember now. Anyways, I don't remember either. Good. It's it's basically two tribes are at war in the their version of Africa, and um, and Conan sort of double crosses some guy, and there's a super slaughter, and then she runs off, um, and she runs so far, she runs into like a um, a kind of uh, a grove of Ashtaroth sort of valley, where women who go into the valley turn into flowers or something it's very unclear and then at the uh as she's on this altar um sort of waiting to die or being turned into a flower or something a giant bat-like god descends from the sky well conan's been chasing after her because i don't know she's the prize he wants or something and he has a battle with this god um and he doesn't win but he doesn't lose and it's like to me, it's like super symbolic of something. It's like Howard saying, like, um, we got to fight against the gods, even though we can't win, or something like that. And that's like, wow, that's really interesting. And everybody seems to hate this story, but I thought I thought it was very interesting. Huh. Um, uh, full of symbolism. Yeah. That is mysterious, and I I really like that stuff. <laughs> that stuff like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what the hell's going on? And I. I I can't recommend it as the best Conan story at all, um, but it's a very interesting story, and maybe that means it has the potential to be the best story. To me, that's uh, there's another one I'm thinking about. Uh, it's called H.G. Um, Wells' story called The Beautiful Suit, and I, I, I read that one recently, too, and it's like it's a, about a guy who he has his mother makes a suit for him, but he's not allowed to wear it, because I think he's like a kid or something. And then he has a dream where he g- gets out of bed and puts on his suit and then goes out in the garden. And he walks through the garden, and it's very magical. And then he walks right through the um, to the, the uh, pond in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And he walks right through it with his beautiful suit. And then he walks through like a, a hedge. Um, and then he walks down the road. And then that's the end of the story. And I'm like, what the fuck does this mean? It's so interesting <laughs> because it's full of like meaning, but the meaning is obtuse. I, I find myself obsessed with like, I got to know what this means. It's like a puzzle, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, I guess that's the exact kind of story I'm really interested in. It's like, I, I want to know what it means. What does it mean? And when I figured out like, Lord of the Rings uh, rings are like they're it's all about power and power is super dangerous and it's corrupting and the reason you're a good carrier for this Bilbo or Frodo is because you're so you're so small <laughs> you're so unimportant that you're, you're the least likely to be corrupted and it's like what does well, this mean is this yeah, that, yeah it, the least likely like, to be corrupted but who would, because who would, be, who would be a great president right it's not the most corrupt guy on earth. It would be the least corrupt guy the on earth. The most right? reluctant guy on earth is who we. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the guy. Instead, you get the guys who who are most interested in it, right? Right, right. Uh, you know, the her whole ambition, Hillary Clinton's whole ambition. I gotta be president. Gotta be president. And then people say, "Oh, she really wants it. That can't be good. <laughs> Let's give it to this uh, this idiot asshole because that'll be funny." <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, you, can't, you can't really classify uh, the collective head that way, you know. Um, but that is certainly some people's motivation. Um, and ultimately, if you sort of think about what thinking is, right, it's a whole bunch of cells getting together and, and having voting, right? The reason you don't want to cut off your own finger is because it, it, the cells in that finger are like, no, don't do it, right? And you're saying, well, you know, it's, it's infected. And uh, so, you know, it's hard for you to do, but you'll do it. Um, the collective mind, is, if it is a thing, has to be classifiable in some way. And I think a lot of it is, is yeah, people just don't want to give somebody who, who wants power that badly power. And it's better to give it to a, a, a TV clown than it is to uh, give it to somebody. Like, I think that there's something to, to those rings of power other than what Tolkien maybe even needed or intended. That makes, that's what makes it so compelling. But I don't know what the sword in this story means, really. I think it's just a plot point for that, you know, the Ragnarok sort of thing. Which is, it's fine, but it's just, it, it doesn't have that extra oomph. No, I think it, I think it has meaning. Um, it's, you know, I, I said earlier in the podcast about um, how the sword itself is what killed the guy at the end. A will of its own. Yeah, so it's really, you know, just be careful with what you're doing, I guess, you know. But nuclear don't, weapons don't, don't have a will of their own, right? Um, no, no, they don't. But, it, I mean, it's it may not be a weapon that it's a metaphor for. It's like... Uh, um, be careful what you wish for, you know, because your your actions can get out of hand, right? Yeah. Well, I, that's that's why I like the you know that Volsunga saga with the dragons. Dragons are basically rich, uh, rich people who who don't want to share. Rich kings, uh -huh. right? Who don't want to share their their earnings, and then they need to be slayed because they're they're dangerous, right? Um, or, and, or, or, and, or and also dragons. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, like, think, think about this. One of the things that happens in in dragon stories, right, is they they're always after young maidens, right? They're always uh, stealing young maidens. Well, one of the things that makes dragons steal young maidens is that old rich dudes steal young maidens, right? And some some dude is just making his way in the world. It's like. That's not fair. Let's go kill him, right? And, and take his horde. Uh, it's it's a very. Um, it's not like they steal young men, right? They steal young maidens, um, and it's because they're sitting on that horde of treasure. There's something to that, and werewolf is is the same thing. It's like it, 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 it you you turn werewolf, right? You become you you when you start sleeping under that shaggy uh, cloak, or you put on the werewolf belt. You're turning yourself into a, a countryside terror where you just go and kill and rape and, and uh, you know, steal people's shit and cut them up. And that's like – it's like a way of people becoming savage in a sort of, uh, you know, collective Nazism we think of or in the wild hunt, right? The same thing. It's a kind of it's – it's, it's deeply symbolic of something uh, within the human psyche. And that's why it's powerful, I think, is because there's something true about it. 
but I don't I don't know what the the like what's X, Excalibur is the right to rule or something is that is that what it is and is the responsibility of of rulership mm-hmm. and when he uses it in the wrong way uh, the sword breaks right yeah 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 what that means in this context I didn't get the sense that I'm I'm getting it's it's like sneaky. I, I like stories that are sneaky and making me think about ideas. And I'm like, what does this mean? And I, I think I don't think this means anything. I think it's so just a plot. So does Conan do that? No, it's the it's kind of the, it's it's actually kind of like you know how I was saying Conan doesn't ha- doesn't care what sword he picks up. Right, right. It, it is very Nietzschean and it's very uh, so like overcoming. Um, and that's why that story, The Veil of Lost Women, is so interesting because it's kind of like saying. Um, uh, you know, Conan's god is named Krom, and he says, "You know, I call upon your name, uh, but I, you're not going to help me." And the guy who wrote the script for the movie, he ingested all the stories, the the first Conan movie. He ingested all the stories and sort of put picked bits here and there from all of them, and then overlaid a sort of Nietzschean philosophy over it, uh, which is not uh, not necessarily a bad thing even though it sounds like it might be scary um, because it's about uh, overcoming and being more than you can be in a certain sense, being more than just an animal in a certain sense. And uh, so Conan is kind of like half Odysseus and half the, uh, or the Ubermensch because he's, he's experiencing the world, right? In the same way that Odysseus, you know, he wants to taste all the pleasures of the island before he goes home, even though he says he doesn't. He he spends time experiencing everything, and then he goes home and becomes a werewolf for a while, and then back to normal. <laughs> right? uh, with Conan, it's it's very epic, and it's about man, being a man in manliness, I think, and and it's about overcoming, especially things. It's like the Gordian knot situation, where you know. All the hard guys have thought, you know, what to do about this problem, and he doesn't necessarily uh, lead a an army as much as he's trying to. He's sort of a symbol of overcoming itself. He's he is actually quite philosophical. Howard is. He's just uh, it's an undercurrent rather than a an overcurrent. He's he's super different from Howard uh, from Lovecraft. They they totally have different philosophies about everything, basically. And and what's so, uh, striking also about Howard is that he can write sort of Lovecraftian stories, and he did, right? He wrote actual Lovecraftian stories that are basically everything Lovecraft would do, except they have a they're not as well done. But they're, they're Lovecraft stories essentially, mm-hmm. but Lovecraft never ever ever wrote anything other than his own stuff, and. Some of the sometimes that's a comedy, and sometimes it's a uh, uh, straight up, you know, uh, weird tale or whatever or horror, but a quasi science fiction. But he's super true to himself. Whereas Conan, uh, the Howard is he's he's a bit more flexible, and sometimes he's way more commercial. But this is this one, the Veil of Lost Women, is one that didn't ever get published in his lifetime obviously unsaleable in a certain sense. That's why it's interesting to me. But I wouldn't start with it if, if you want to try one. Try um, the uh, 
Queen of the Black Coast, which is also up on the site there. Gotcha. I, I think I did a podcast on it too, so it's probably yeah. got the. It does have the audio. So we can't do a podcast on it again. No, no but um, but it, it it's it's the one. Um, it, it, have you seen the movie, Scott? Queen of the Black Coast. No, no, the original. Oh, the two, uh, the original cool. ones, yeah. It's, well, original meaning the Schwarzenegger movies. Yeah, the first yeah. Schwarzenegger movie. Yeah, sure. You don't need to ever mention the second one because it's terrible. Okay. <laughs> um, but the first but one. But second, second one. He, he is more of like, let's gather my adventuring party and go tackle the, the wizard. Yeah, it's I, more D&D. It's more D&D. Like, I know when to steal it's the actually, to. It's actually based on the comics a lot more than it is anything else. There's a, the, 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 what's the black uh, woman model name? Iman? No, Iman's not in it. Um, uh, Grace, Grace Jones. Jones? Grace Jones. Uh, her character is actually based on a male character uh, that was invented for the comics. Um, it's not anywhere near as good as the first one. First one's got some really interesting stuff, but one of the things that's in it is this it's character. It's an origin story. It is, but it's also got this character named Valeria, who's a real character in another story uh, by Co- by Howard, um, and she's like sort of the, the woman uh, model for... Uh, you know what to stro- what a tough woman would be like. She's a pirate and a bunch of stuff, right? And they turn her story ending in the movie into the one that happens in uh, Queen of the Black Coast, where you've got this rapacious woman who uh, she wants revenge and she wants money. And she's greedy and she she has a bad end. Conan survives that, and he's sort of the secondary character in that story. Right, he's the viewpoint character. Mm-hmm. Um, Belit or Bellet um, is her name in that. And so when she comes back from the dead in that story, um, it's pretty awesome. Um, and it's only for a second, right? And it's basically the idea is that um, gods can't help you, and that's why I'm talking about Nietzsche and stuff, right? Is because. Um, Nietzsche's the guy who says God is dead. God is dead. What do we do about this? This is a huge, huge issue. Um, what, what are, what does morality mean if there's no God? If he's dead, if we've let him die, or he's whatever that means, and it's very interesting because mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's like I don't know. Well, let's figure this out. And I, I don't know your, well, your answer is kind of weird. I don't know what it makes me. It makes me think stuff though. Yeah. And it's less about the writing on a on a sentence by sentence level, and it's more about the epic epic nature of the idea. 